Welcome to Charlottesville. I assume that most of you are from out of town. Um, welcome to UVA Law School, and welcome to our session on law and democracy. My name is Mike Gilbert. I'm a professor here at the law school, and if you come here and remain interested in these topics, we'll cross paths in the years ahead. Uh, my plan is to give you a quick introduction to this topic. We'll talk in a little bit of detail about a pending law and democracy case, just to give you a concrete sense of what lawyers do in this area. I'll tell you a little at the back end about what UVA law offers in terms of uh, coursework and so on in this area, and then we'll have at least 10 minutes for questions uh, um, before the session ends. So here's my little spiel to begin. We'll start with a quote. Democracy, Winston Churchill famously said, is the worst form of government, except for all those others that have been tried. Okay, smart guy, this Churchill, and as usual, his quote contains this hard kernel of truth. No one anywhere thinks democracy is perfect. It is a constant source of frustration, as a few of you may have experienced in, say, the last 16 months. <laughs> but democracy beats the heck out of the alternatives. Okay, what is democracy exactly? This sounds like a simple question. You should have gotten an answer to it in a high school civics class, if they still taught those things. It's not a simple question. Democracy is hard. It's this complicated mix of norms and beliefs and practices. Some of them are contestable, sometimes they're contradictory. Bear with me, let's just talk for a minute about some of this theory. Voting. Okay, in a democracy, the people are sovereign. So the principal mechanism by which they exercise that sovereignty is the vote. So voting is fundamental to democracy. But of course, most people in most democracies, most of the time, they're not voting on law and policy. You elect somebody who makes law and policy on your behalf. Okay, so representation is fundamental to democracy. And of course, representation is really hard. If one of you was selected to represent this group, how would you do it? Well, you can go around and ask everyone their priorities, but you know what you're going to get? A bunch of contradictory lists. <laughs> okay, well now, now what do you do? All right, separate from these topics, information is fundamental to democracy. I mean, if you don't know what your representative is doing, or what your government more generally is doing, you don't know if you should re-elect the incumbent or kick them out. In other words, without information, representation doesn't work, and the vote's no good. Okay, so information's fundamental to democracy. How do we get it? Well, a principal mechanism is through something like the First Amendment to our Constitution. Free press, freedom of speech, the freedom to associate. Okay, if you're a member of the majority, in whatever sense, maybe democracy looks pretty good. What if you're a member of the minority? Is democracy much different from dictatorship? Well, in a dictatorship, one person tells you what to do. In a democracy, the majority tells you what to do. Either way, you're being told what to do. Okay, so from a minority's point of view, and political philosophers embrace this, a well-functioning democracy must include minority protections, things like religious freedom. All right, we could go on and on about the theory, but here's the point I want to get to. How do these high-minded ideals about democracy from the ivory tower get translated into practice? How do you go from these ideas to the Democratic and Republican parties, to campaign finance and super PACs, to voter ID laws, to the case unfolding right now in Kansas involving the legality of a Kansas law that requires you to prove you're a U.S. citizen before you can register to vote? How does that transition happen? It's through our people. It's through lawyers. Okay? Constitutional law, statutes, regulations at federal and state levels, all of these rules translate democracy in theory to democracy in action. Lawyers write those rules. We populate legislatures and regulatory bodies. Lawyers enforce those rules. Right? They work at the Federal Election Commission. 
that enforces campaign finance. They advise candidates and campaigns, and lawyers interpret that, those rules when they sit uh, as judges. We are fundamental to the democratic enterprise, and now this is just my personal opinion. There are few, if any, areas of legal practice that are more exciting than the nexus between law and democracy. Okay, that's a broad general introduction. Let's make things a little bit more concrete. I have a couple pictures to show you. We'll talk about an important law and democracy kind of case that's pending right now in the US Supreme Court. Districting. You guys know something about this stuff. Uh, I assume no background information. Let's talk through the very basics. Here is a map of our fine country divided into 50 states. Now, every two years, as you probably know, people in all these states go to the polls and they elect new members of the U.S. House of Representatives. How many members does each state get depends on population. If you're from, as I am, Montana, big state, nobody lives there. We have one representative. If you're from California, Texas, Florida, these are big states, right? They have lots of representatives. Okay, big states with lots of representatives are divided into congressional districts and people in each individual district, every two years, you vote for one member of Congress. Now here is the same map divided into these congressional districts. So take a look at Montana, <laughs> if you know where it is, and fly over country. <laughs> the whole state's one district, just one representative. But look at Texas or California or Florida, it looks like a patchwork. Now, it may be a little abstract at this distance, but you might scratch your head and say, you know, those lines don't look quite as tidy as I think they should. <laughs> Let's zoom in on a few of them. This is one district, congressional district, 114th Congress out of Texas, won by a Republican. Now, I don't know what your standards are, but to me, that looks like a fish hook, <laughs> not like a district. So there's a population center here that's in this district, then it winds its way around, picks up some suburbs here. You know what's not in that district? The center of Houston. Now, why might that be? Who lives in the center? Democrats live in the middle of Houston, and if this Republican wants to keep that seat, you don't want the Democrats in your district. Okay, now, lest you think that only the Republicans are guilty of this, how about this district in Maryland? <laughs> now, that's really something. <laughs> it starts up here. This is basically a highway that it follows. It scoops in a population center there, and it goes down and around, works its way along the coast. Okay, what, what's going on here? Well, you're picking up Democrats in this community and that one to create a majority in the district. Yeah. But in that particular case, that's like more about parochialism and incumbency protection and like the member wanting particular things in their district, right? Uh, like you, could, you could draw districts in a lot of ways in Maryland and elect Democrats because it's a very blue state. Yes, precisely. Okay, so hold that thought. We'll see some more examples to bear on this. Okay. How about this? North Carolina. Now we get fair treatment on both sides. The same state has some blue districts like number one. Now number one is a really interesting district because it is a majority minority district. And now we don't mean political minority, we mean racial minority. Okay? So of the population in district one, the voting age population, a majority is African American. Now this turns out to be important in voting rights litigation for all kinds of reasons. Uh, uh, um, of course it's important as a matter of policy too. Now you may not be able to tell, but this little river of blue, that's actually a congressional district too. The 12th district looks like a snake, and um, it made its way to the Supreme Court at least four times in the space of about 12 years. Because people said, you can't draw the district line that way, it's a quote, racial gerrymander. So here's the claim, the state of North Carolina is scooping up this African American community and that African community and so forth and so on, all the way down the state until it's majority African American. 
Now maybe you say, look, as a matter of policy, we want to promote minority representation. But as a matter of constitutional law, you can't do that. You can't sort people into districts based on the color of their skin. That violates the 14th Amendment. Okay. Um, this is big picture kind of stuff, and uh, uh, it may help matters if we simplify. Let's just think about this little map I've put together for you. Okay, we have one state with just 10 voters. Make it easy. Four of them are Republicans. Those are those elephants. Four of them are Democrats, the donkeys. And now let's add two independent voters. Well, they look like Tea Partiers, but don't think of them that way. Don't think of them as conservative. Think of them as actual independents. They could go either way. It's going to depend on the race. Now, we need to divide these voters into two districts. That's one way to do it. What's the upside of doing it that way? A lot of people would look at this and say, yeah, that's, that's what I want to see. You yeah. have competitive races? Yes. These should produce competitive elections. Either district could go Republican or Democrat. Now, competition's important. <laughs> you think competition in the market for your smartphone's important because it drives down prices, right? Competition in government is really important. <laughs> Because the opposite of competition in government, monopoly is dictatorship, and uh, we don't like that. Okay, what's the downside of this? You promote competition, but suppose a Democrat wins over here. Everybody happy? Yeah. yeah? Uh, if like a Democrat wins in each side, then at least 40% of the district is unrepresented? Yeah, you got it. So the upside of competition is you make people work harder for your vote. The downside is afterwards, lots of people are unhappy. Okay, could you do it better? Like this. Well, now the Republicans presumably control one district and the Democrats control another, but things aren't looking so competitive. And we know who's going to win. How about this one? Anybody see a potential problem there? Well, the Republicans are going to win the one on the left, presumably, and they might, might, win the one on the right. Now, I just picked Republicans here, but both sides do this. <laughs> okay. The, if that happens, well, now you see, and it relates to the comment, now you see a kind of, many people perceive, a kind of representational problem. Look, the Republicans are 40% of the population, and in this simple little model here, they get 100% of the seats. That can't be right. Okay. Wisconsin has a map that looks a lot like this. In 2010, the legislature, the governorship, it was all controlled by Republicans for the first time in a long time. And they drew new district lines, they gerrymandered, and they did it very effectively. Republicans are about half the state population. Statewide, they get about half the votes in elections. They control many more than half the seats. Okay. So there's a representational error. Can you do this? Well, the Constitution doesn't say you can't. It doesn't say you can. Some plaintiffs challenged it in Wisconsin. They said, this is unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment. Probably you don't know what that is yet, but wait a year. You'll know all about it. <laughs> the basic idea is you can't decide which district people should be in on the basis of whether they affiliate with Republicans or Democrats. There's some kind of you know, unequal treatment or discrimination happening here. There is no right or wrong answer to this. As a matter of law, it's unclear. It's right now sitting at the Supreme Court. The justices have to make a decision about this. Who briefed the case? Lawyers. Who brought the case? Lawyers. Who drew the line? Lawyers. Who's going to resolve it and possibly remake the legislatures of all states nationwide, plus Congress? Lawyers. Those Supreme Court justices. We are central to the uh, democratic enterprise. Okay. Um, there are 
Many other topics we could discuss here if we had more time. Voter ID laws, citizenship requirements, campaign finance, the list goes on. The idea here was just to give you a general sense of uh, uh, one pressing legal issue in this field right now. What I want to spend a few minutes on now is telling you uh, what you can do if you come to UVA Law to get trained in these issues and to pursue a career on this stuff. So let me start by telling you about coursework. Um, as a 1L, here and at every other law school, you'll take constitutional law, and that'll give you some basics, like what's the 14th Amendment that I just gestured at. You can take many other classes here, too. So I teach a course called Regulation of the Political Process. I teach it almost every year. It's a big lecture. I have 85 enthusiastic students in there now. Um, it's a lot of fun, and it's the kind of baseline course to do any work in this area. Once you finish that course, you understand campaign finance, you understand the right to vote, you understand voter ID laws, you get exposed to all this stuff and the mechanics of it. There are lots of other courses you can take too. So we usually, every year, have a seminar called Advanced Campaign Finance. And you learn a lot about campaign finance and you learn it from a guy named Matt Sanderson who's a uh, lawyer in Washington. He's an actual practitioner. He's been general counsel for presidential campaigns. He comes down and gives you nuts and bolts on the ground kind of instruction in this stuff. You can take classes here on freedom of speech and freedom of press. Of course, for reasons we discussed at the beginning, all of that's directly relevant to election law. You can take classes on government ethics, lobbying, uh, the list goes on. Okay, in addition to formal coursework, you can do other stuff. You can do independent studies. So you get credit to work on some area of a law and democracy that you find especially interesting. So I've had students write papers on gubernatorial elections in Virginia. You know we have this kind of funny off-cycle election, right? Most everyone everywhere elected new officials in 2016 while well, we do it in 2017. <laughs> everyone else will do it in 2020, we're gonna do it in 2021. Okay, I had another student who is working now on a paper um, that's totally cool. You, you guys have some sense of what a super PAC is. These outside groups, they spend a lot of money in politics. Okay, in the last presidential election, a super PAC possessed a list of names and email addresses of potential supporters of Hillary Clinton. Now, Hillary Clinton's campaign would, of course, like this contact list, but the super PAC can't give it to them. That would count under federal law as a, quote, contribution, and they can't make contributions. So what did the super PAC do? It sold it to her campaign eh, for a couple thousand dollars. What do you think the market value is of that email list? <laughs> Not a couple thousand. It's more than that, right? Okay, well, this is a thorny legal issue that have got to sort out. When do you go from making a contribution to you know, a transaction that's, that's permissible. So a student's writing about that now. You can do directed research. There are lots of professors here who do stuff in this area and you can work for one, right? Hey, I'm working on a research project. Students come help, you learn something. You can also get credit for that um, or get paid for it if you are a research assistant as opposed to directed research. Okay, extracurricular activities. We have the ACS and the Federalist Society. You guys know what those are? This is a big simplification, but basically it's the left and the right. <laughs> We have them both, they're well represented, and that's good, right? You do not want to go, in my judgment, to a law school or to any place where you're trying to get educated and enter the echo chamber that so many people think is part of the problem with polarization in America today. We've got both sides. There are events running all the time. Some liberals over here, some conservatives over there, and you can learn from them both. We also have journals. So I don't know if you have a sense of how journals work in law school. It's kind of a rite of passage, but of course you can skip out on it if you if you want. These are student-run, student-edited publications. Professors submit papers to you. You decide what to publish. You work on them. Uh, it gives you some practice with law. It gives you some practice working in teams. It makes you focus on details, which is part of the important work 
lawyers do. We have two journals here uh, directly on point, the Journal of Law and Politics, which is old and relevant for obvious reasons, and the Journal of Social Policy and Law. You could work on either or both and get exposed to lots of this stuff. Um, UVA Law offers externships. So the idea is you can uh, take a semester off from coursework and you go work somewhere and you get academic credit for doing it. So we have placed uh, externs, I'm just thinking about recent years, at the Federal Election Commission, Washington, okay, where they enforce or quote enforce campaign finance laws. Depends a little bit on your point of view. Uh, we've placed people on Capitol Hill. They work for candidates. They work for committees. Um, we've placed uh, people in other places too. In addition to externships, the last thing I'll mention is um, UVA Law has a deep history in this area. And as a consequence, we have a really rich alumni base. We have a famously loyal alumni base, actually, um, um, uh, across the board, but including in this area. So old school, the Kennedys went here for law school, but that's some time ago. Let me point out some contemporary, more contemporary people. Uh, I was just looking at the list ahead of time, Sheldon Whitehouse. Senator from Rhode Island, he graduated from our law school. Okay, Donald McEachin was just elected to the House of Representatives in Congress out of Virginia. He's a recent, relatively recent UVA law graduate. Until a month ago when one of them resigned, um, two of the six commissioners on the Federal Election Commission were UVA law graduates. One of them, Lee Goodman, he's the one who just uh, um, resigned. Half the time he works in the UVA law library. You'll see Commissioner Goodman hanging around here. Okay, Bob Bauer was White House counsel under President Obama. He's a UVA law graduate. He comes back from time to time. Um, um, the list goes on and on. We have lots of alumni working in this field. We have a long tradition in this, in this space. Um, and that's all I wanted to tell you. We have 11 minutes. I'm glad to take questions. Well, it's a good, hard question. There are lots of ways to think about this. So one thing you'll learn next year is that the Constitution includes, doesn't specifically say it, a right to travel. You can go wherever you want in this country. The government can't stop you. So there's no direct mechanism short of a constitutional amendment. And of course, this probably doesn't sound like good policy, whereby you say, no, no, you have to stay there. <laughs> you have to stay there. So we self-sort. And this is part of the reason the American economy grows and things like this, but it may have this potential downside, right? Um, uh, sure, law could try to make a difference here, right? It wasn't that long ago that we had regulations about equal time on the air for a presentation of political ideas. We don't have those anymore. So uh, maybe, that's, maybe that's a good conclusion as a matter of law, as a matter of policy, but a lot of people say, well, it, it feeds the polarization that's affecting American society right now. People would have different views if they were forced, when they see the side they prefer, to then frequently confront the side that with which they disagree, right? And of course, without these rules, you don't have to do that. So I certainly believe law can make a difference here. Um, but how in the many avenues, we need a lot longer than 11 minutes. Other questions? Right. Yeah, in the corner. Case that you mentioned, uh, and the case from Maryland. Yeah. 
So I don't, uh, I'll give you a very short answer and then we can talk more afterwards. So part of the problem with this partisan gerrymandering stuff, there's two problems. So the first one is how to measure it. Okay, so it's one thing to look at these maps and you say, gosh, that looks like a squashed bug. Oh, yeah, okay. It looks weird, strikes us as weird. But we need some way to, to do this in a meaningful way. We need to be able to measure the extent of the gerrymander so that you can say these are not gerrymandered districts, these are sort of gerrymandered, and those, those are really bad. And we don't have agreement on how to do that. <coughs> Social scientists and lawyers are trying to work out a way to do it, and they've made some progress recently, but it's all contestable, right? Then there's a second problem. Even if you can measure the extent of the gerrymander, when does it cross the line and become unconstitutional? Constitution doesn't tell you, as I suggested, right? So this is a kind of hard judgment the justices have to make. So part of the stakes in this case that's pending before the Supreme Court now that I gestured at, it's not just whether Wisconsin can keep its lines or whether they need to be redrawn. In a sense, these are pretty small stakes because for reasons you'll learn if you take my class, in 2020 they have to redraw the lines anyway. It's already 2018. The real stakes in the case are on this question. Okay, what is the court going to say is the right way to measure gerrymandering? Big implications here. And what is the court going to say about the line? You can go this far, but no, no farther. That's what this case is really about. The Supreme Court's making the rules, and they're going to matter for a long time. And with more time, I'll give you my personal views after. <laughs> yeah? How much do you dive into sort of political science methodology and sort of, you know, Robert's sociological gobbledygook? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I love this stuff. I have a PhD. I teach classes, two classes on law and economics. Um, um, and I think uh, uh, economic theory can be so valuable for thinking about how the law works. Not just in this area, but in other areas too, in contracts and torts. All the stuff you have to take as a 1L and that right now you probably don't think is that interesting. It is interesting and it's important. And there's economics working in the background there. Okay, so in my class, I do do some of this stuff, economics. I do do some political science kind of stuff too. But you can also at UVA uh, pursue lots of other routes if you're interested in an interdisciplinary education. And I think it's, it's helpful if you're interested in law and democracy. So I'll just mention some courses offhand. Josh Fishman's an economist and a lawyer here. He teaches a class called Quantitative Methods. So if you don't know any statistics or only know a little, that's a good class for you. The idea is not to turn you into a statistician. <laughs> that takes a long time, right? It's not that relevant for law practice most of the time. The idea is, okay, at the end of this class, I understand what a regression is. So that when I'm litigating, for example, a voting rights case, and the other side's claim is that the voter ID law you imposed did not reduce voter turnout, and they have some statistics to try to show that, well, now you can think critically about it. Right, okay, that, that's the idea. And there are other courses uh, in this vein. We have psychologists here who teach law and social science kind of stuff. Um, so the answer is a little, but you can do a lot more if you, if you want to. To be clear, most lawyers doing this work have no training in any of this, <laughs> and they're doing fine. But if you're interested, you can get it. Yep? This is really a great topic, and I'm just curious about the, um, the alumni who just graduated. You know, what are they doing sort of four or five years post-graduation? Are they doing something in, in regards to law and democracy, or what is it that you know that they're doing? Yes, okay, good question. So I do not have a full handle on this, in part because, you know, I see a subset of the students. I don't see everybody. And I actually actively encourage students who are interested in this stuff to take classes from me and so on, but also to go spend time with other faculty because it's important to get exposed to more people. So I don't have a full handle, but I can give you a, a couple of generalizations. So first of all, many, many law students walk out with debt 
you have to pay some bills. Okay, how can you do that while still expressing an interest in election law? Lots and lots of big firms, especially in DC and elsewhere, um, have lots of attorneys that every two and four years get wrapped into election law. <laughs> you might be doing securities litigation or antitrust or whatever else in between, but as these elections get closer, they have to staff up. So a way to do this is you go to a big firm with the understanding that I'm going to do this some of the time, I'm going to do other stuff some of the time, and you know the deal with big firms. They work you very hard, but they pay you a mountain of money. And if you can just resist the temptation to buy a BMW, you can pay off your debt, and then the chains are off. You can do what you want, right? uh, uh, including election law stuff. You can stay at a firm. You can go work for the ACLU and litigate voting rights cases. Right? Um, okay, so concretely, uh, just offhand, I had a student graduate a few years ago who is an attorney at the Federal Elections Commission right now, so he works on enforcement issues and regulations. Um, I have two students who are both election lawyers in California now. They both work at two, excuse me, small private firms. And they both do a lot of work on um, direct democracy. So this is not such an issue on the East Coast, but if you're from the West, you know about these ballot initiatives. Right? You go to the polls, you vote for a candidate, and then the next question you're asked is, should we raise the sales tax by 1%? And you say, how the heck would I know the answer to that? Well, vote. <laughs> it's up to you. <laughs> okay, well, just like candidate elections, direct democracy has all these rules and regulations, and there's a lot of, a lot of learn there, and people are doing that. I, there are also people who graduate and go to work on Capitol Hill. Um, um, uh, candidates need advice not just when they're running for office, but once they're in office, they need advice on, okay, should we think about changing the rules for campaign finance, for example? Well, they need good lawyers to help them think this through. Other questions? Got it all sorted? Okay. Well, I'll stick around. If you have questions, let me know. I hope you enjoy your visit, and good luck. Yeah, sure. Thanks.